Welcome to the Bible Questions podcast brought to you by BibleQuestions.org and the Holly Street Church of Christ. This podcast is dedicated to answering your Bible questions from the Bible. My name is Brian, and along with Jeff, we are the hosts of this program. Greetings and welcome to the Bible Questions podcast program. We've got your regular co-hosts, Jeff and Brian, with you today. Today we're going to be talking about the family. Hey, Brian, before we sort of start introducing stuff, do you have any uh, anything you want to add? Yeah, really looking forward to this one. You know, we were talking before the recording here about the subject of family, and of all the podcasts that we have recorded so far, we haven't really had one dedicated to family, so looking forward to this one. Indeed. Well, and certainly from a biblical perspective, you know, a well-functioning family it is certainly a very critical aspect or a critical component involving, you know, relationships between husband and wife, between parents and children. And then, of course, being critical by extension, raising future generations of not only well-adjusted people, so to speak, but, you know, good citizens, good employees, spiritual leaders in the church, etc. So the family certainly is a very important topic, uh, which we will uh, definitely want to get into today. But for starters, from a biblical perspective, family goes all the way back, all the way back to the first book in the Bible, you know, Genesis, chapters 1 and 2. Hey, Brian, could you go ahead and read Genesis chapter 2, verse 18 through 24? We'll kind of skip over 19 and 20. Yeah, sure. Sounds good. So Genesis 2, beginning in verse 18, And the Lord said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Verse 21, And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam. And he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman. And he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Yeah, and it's in my mind, it's kind of interesting that God chose this particular mechanism, if I could use that term, or this particular miracle. You know, he could have made you know Eve out of the dust of the ground in front of Adam, and he could watch the pride, whatever. But an interesting technique, if you will, that illustrates, especially for us, a strong oneness between husband and wife, which certainly includes, you know, sexual relationships, but also a unity from the uh, perspective, thinking, you know, mentally, emotionally, financially, spiritually, husband, wife, as sort of you know, the, the beginning, first step, foundation of a family. You know, this goes throughout the scriptures and continues on in the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 5. Hey, Brian, can you uh, give me another one? Uh, Ephesians 5, 25 through, oh, how about 33? Okay, so beginning in verse 25 of Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. 
Verse 32, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Oh, in some ways, here we have the, if you will, the Holy Spirit through Paul going back to what was recorded via the Holy Spirit through most likely Moses, you know, back in Genesis, you know, referring to this, you know, special relationship, husband and wife, and the mutual attitudes, uh, respect, uh, etc., that they should have one for another. And certainly the Bible goes on to add to that the parent-child relationship and responsibilities. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 5, just kind of continuing with the reading, if you roll over into chapter 6, first four verses, children, obey your parents in the Lord. This is right. Honor your father and mother, This, which is the first commandment with promise, that I may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Certainly, we could add other verses that talk about the you know the family relationship, etc. But I think these at least serve as a strong foundation for what it should be. And I say should be because unfortunately, in today's world, you know, far too many families reflect a different kind of relationship or a different kind of attitude or a different kind of environment with problems, wobbles, neglect, anger, rebellion, divorce, etc. So for our listeners today, what we wanted to do, given this is kind of an introductory foundation, we'd like to offer up a fair number of questions that have been submitted to our website that uh, over the last you know few years uh, that are related to this topic of family, certainly in hopes that by sharing these questions and answers with you, our listeners, you may have a similar situation, you may have you know similar questions. And so today's podcast hopefully is for you, even though originally the questions we received were focused on someone else. Brian, do you have any other uh, introductory comments before we uh, start working our way through the questions? I appreciate how you frame this introduction because we really do want to understand, okay, what was God's plan for family from the beginning? And, you know, in our society today, certainly here in the United States, we've seen a lot of redefinitions of what family is. And, you know, in some cases you think about maybe a mother or father that dies or a mother or father that is a drug or alcohol addicted person. And so therefore, children have to be raised by their grandparents. Well, we commend grandparents for doing that. However, as you've just mentioned in this introduction, you know, we see God's plan really was for a man and woman to marry, have children. Doesn't mean they have to, but that's really God's intention for how the family unit, if you will, should work. And so anyhow, look forward to being able to go through some of the questions which reflect, as our listeners will see, some of the dysfunction, if you will, that can happen when that family unit breaks down. Mm, Good point. Okay, so let's get into it. So looks like, Brian, you get the first question from Vincent, who asks, is family planning biblical? This term family planning, you know, is is kind of an interesting one. I, I suppose it probably has different meanings in different countries. But here in the United States, you know, we have clinics, for instance, that offer 
what they call family planning. But but to start out, you know, what is it biblical? Well, the Bible doesn't say anything about the subject of quote-unquote family planning. So we really have to determine if what a family planning clinic, let's say, offers, you know, are they following biblical principles? And I think we all understand when it comes to several subjects in life, the Bible's not going to necessarily cover that specific thing, like family planning. However, once again, we know God's Word and understand His principles. We can kind of apply those principles. So, for instance, many family planning clinics are publicly funded, and they provide things like contraceptives, counseling, and other what they call health services to poor and low-income families. So, on the surface, that's very commendable, right? People that would like to maybe have a family, so they seek out counseling at places like this that might help a couple understand like the health risks of pregnancy or what they should expect when planning to have children, you know, what it takes to raise children and those kinds of things. And you know what, all those kinds of counseling services are fine and and they can be very informative. Now, if you think about like contraception, if someone's being provided with contraception to maybe prevent pregnancy in a marriage, so in other words, maybe a husband and wife do not want to have children until they reach a certain age. Well, you know, providing contraception does not violate any of God's laws. And I bring that up because, you know, Jeff, I'm sure you know, but, you know, there are many, there are some religions, I should say, such as Catholicism that have made their own regulations against the use of birth control. But really, their position cannot be supported biblically. In other words, the Bible does not say anything, nor does it condemn something like contraception to prevent pregnancy. Now, The key point, though, is that some of these clinics provide abortions. In fact, in the U.S., a lot of these do. And so to take advantage of that type of a service would be sinful because it's contrary to what the Bible teaches. Abortion is murder. And so you wouldn't want to use a clinic for something like that. So once again, just have to kind of weigh which services do they provide? Do they align with God's principles? If they do, great. If they don't, then you don't want to use a clinic like that. Jeff? Yeah, and, and appreciate you kind of covering several different aspects. The only thing I might add in, in the general sense of family planning, there probably is also an element of choosing, you know, maybe not only when to have children, but how many children to have as part of the planning process. And that reminds me of 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, where it talks about the financial responsibility a person has to his household. And I only mention that because, you know, sometimes you hear these stories of people who have multiple kids when they really can't afford them and it induces a poverty kind of situation, a deprivation kind of situation. I'm not saying that every single child has to have, you know, X amount of money to fully provide them with an affluent lifestyle. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just pointing out that along with sexual enjoyment, and bringing children into the world, there's also, you know, financial responsibilities in addition to, as we'll see, you know, later on, the responsibilities of of teaching and training and, and, you know, bringing them up, quote unquote, in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So, Brian, anything else on that before we move to the next question? Yeah, appreciate that. There's a stewardship element there, right? So, yeah. Exactly. Uh, Let's see. Okay, so the next question is from Daniel, and Daniel asks, who is correcting a house between a husband and a wife according to the Bible? Now, I'm not exactly certain what they have in mind. I would assume by house they're, assume, they're referring to children. And I assume by correcting 
part of that may be what we might say getting on to someone, you know, is doing something they shouldn't, may or may not include, you know, corporal punishment. So I'm, I'm kind of assuming some of those things. But, you know, first and foremost, Brian, I think we need to kind of uh, acknowledge Daniel and certainly appreciate that the question acknowledges the need and the responsibility for parents to train, instruct, set boundaries, and correct their children as the children, you know, learn and push up against the boundaries or run through the boundaries, so to speak. And I say that because, uh, unfortunately, too many children today, my opinion, are kind of allowed to do what's wrong, kind of allowed to violate what their parents have told them to do, sometime even, you know, to the point of, you know, talking back to their parents or rebelling against their parents with very little, if any, consequences. I mean, I've seen some situations where, you know, the child does something they shouldn't, and the parent says, now, Johnny, don't do that. Now, Johnny, don't do that. Now, Johnny, you're going to be in trouble if you do that. Now, Johnny, you need to stop doing that. And the child just learns, oh, okay, I can keep on doing it. Or if they uh, rebel, cry, fuss, throw what we would call a temper tantrum, the parents give in. And unfortunately, the parents now have trained the child that the child can get their way if they throw a temper tantrum, you know, not an appropriate behavior. Now, from a, a, you know, biblical perspective, the Bible certainly talks about the need to train children in addition to the need to correct children and correction to include not only telling them what they should do, potentially taking away privileges, time out, etc., but to include corporal punishment when it's appropriate, you know, a certain appropriate level. For instance, and a lot of these, all these, at least the verses I've got here, you know, come from the book of Proverbs, you know, the wisdom that God gave Solomon that he then recorded in Scripture. Proverbs 22, 6. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Proverbs 22, 15. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of correction will drive it far from him. Proverbs 23, 13. Do not withhold correction from a child, for if you beat him with a rod, he will not die. Proverbs 29, 15. The rod and rebuke give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. So, certainly we've established the need for parents to instruct, guide, correct, and if and when appropriate, you know, physical, corporal punishment. But we haven't really answered the question yet. Uh, Who is responsible between a husband and a wife for, for doing this? Well, basically both. I would start off by noting that per Titus 2 verse 4, that mothers have a responsibility in this area as part of loving their children. And of course, loving in that context is the term, Greek term agape, which seeks what's best for the child. And according to scriptures, what's best for the child is training, instruction, guidance, boundaries, etc. But where we tend to find a little bit more responsibility, if I could use that term, would be fathers as head of the household. We see the example of this with Abraham in Genesis 18, verse 19, where God speaking, For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord, to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham 
what he has spoken to him in terms of you know the promises and why Abraham was chosen. You know, as head of his household, you know, he would command and, and raise his children to keep the way of the Lord. Similarly, in the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, and you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Brian, can I get you to go ahead and read Hebrews chapter 12, verses 7 through 11? Sure. Here it says, if you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. I like this particular passage, Brian, because it draws this parallel between earthly fathers and our heavenly fathers, and the kinds of behavior, attitude, boundary setting, training, etc., and sometimes to some degree of consequences for bad behavior, we see, again, in parallel between our heavenly fathers, a heavenly father and our earthly father. So, again, to answer the basic question, both parents have responsibility, and they should be on the same sheet of music, so to speak, on the same wavelength, so to speak, or in agreement in how they're going to structure the training and the children and the boundaries, etc. But from a scriptural perspective, it seems to fall a little bit more to fathers, which sometimes fathers, you know, tend to you know, step back and, and take a secondary role and, you know, let mom take care of things. Any, uh, any thoughts, Brian, before we go to the next one? Yeah, I like that point because, you know, it does vary. Husbands and wives may approach discipline in a different manner, but you're right. I mean, ultimately, it's the husband as the head of the household to make sure that it's done. And then, you know, it varies by child. So, you know, I, for myself, four children, two of them, you know, I could just raise my voice. That's all they needed. They sort of crumbled. They got it. Others, they often would need physical spanking or something to sort of get the point. So anyhow, as parents, we just make sure that it's appropriate for the situation and that it doesn't cross over into abuse. So, well, and you know, I, I really appreciate that, you know, appropriateness to include not only the method, if you will, but when to do it, you know, how often to do it, you know, how long to keep doing it, you know, et cetera. Because on the one hand, you know, there's a balance here, like in all situations where you don't want to be too lenient, you don't want to be too strict, etc. As, you know, one of the verses we said earlier, you know, we certainly don't want to provoke the children to wrath by being, you know, too harsh, for example. But yet we don't want to leave them to their own ways and become a, a very disappointment, if you will, you know, not only to us as parents, but to themselves. You know, some kids, you know, grow to be totally miserable because they've had a lack of boundaries and they're self-centered, selfish, uh, throw tantrums to get their way, even as adults, which is quite shameful. Segway into the next question, right? Well, it does, because, you know, some of the verses that I mentioned included the term rod. 
So our next question is anonymous. Brian, for you. What does the rod represent in Proverbs 23, verses 13 through 14? Should we spank our children with our hand or with a wooden spoon? <laughs> there you go. A couple different examples. Yeah, so good question in the passage that the person referenced, Proverbs 23, 13 and 14, says, Do not withhold correction from a child, for if you beat him with a rod... He will not die. It was one that Jeff just covered. And then verse 14 after that, you shall beat him with the rod and deliver his soul from hell. So when you look at, you know, what is this passage talking about? Well, the focus of the passage itself is not necessarily on the instrument that's being used for punishment, but really the principle, as Jeff just talked about, correcting your child when it's necessary. So the do not withhold correction makes it pretty clear we have a responsibility, right? The parent has a responsibility to correct the child when they've done something wrong. And in verse 14, it talks about, you know, you can, in essence, deliver their soul from hell by correcting them. And the opposite would then be true, right? If we don't ever correct our children or we're too, quote unquote, easy on them, well, it could lead to their soul going to hell in the sense that they grow up and they don't respect authority and they just do whatever they want. So holding them accountable for their behavior. Now, over in Proverbs 13, verse 24, it tells us, He who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. So I like that verse because it also points out you need to do it, and you need to do it promptly. So now when we get to the, the crux of the question, we should not infer that you know, the use of a rod is something that is being mandated, but rather something that will send the message that what the child is doing is wrong. And therefore, there are consequences when they do so. Now, the parent has to be careful not to cross the line into abuse where they're injuring the child. As, you know, if you think about it, the purpose of correction is to get them to understand and change their behavior. And so then I think we could all logically conclude there are probably times where it doesn't necessarily warrant a quote-unquote spanking. You have to kind of gauge what did they do? Does it really require that? Can I just say something? And so, you know, we ponder all of these things based on each situation that occurs with the child. Proverbs chapter 19 and verse 18 says, Chasten your son while there is hope, and do not set your heart on his destruction. And it's kind of interesting, Jeff, there, if you look in different translations, some say, do not set your heart on putting him to death, you know, so that makes it very clear that, yes, you could have some type of what we might call corporal punishment, but just make sure it doesn't cross the line into abuse and don't allow yourself to become so angry, for instance, because they continually do whatever it is that, that you end up being abusive. So anyhow, using a wooden spoon or a hand is fine as long as the method does not cause physical injury, as mentioned. Now, as a side note, you know, I feel like this is why it's wise to what we might call count to 10. So it just means, you know, if your child does something and you, you feel this anger welling up inside you, it probably makes sense to count to 10. In other words, take a minute, step aside, let yourself calm down so that you don't overdo it, if you will. And then give them the spanking and be in control of your emotions. And then, you know, I feel like, I think we all probably would, that it's a good idea to make sure they understand whether it's before you spank them or after, why they're being punished, what you expect them to do in the future. And as obvious as that sounds, you know, sometimes that, that's a step that's missed. It's just like, well, they should know. I've told them, you know, it's like, okay. But just reinforce, you know, listen, I don't like punishing you. I remember with my oldest child, I was like, oh, 
just not something I like to do as it relates to like spanking them. But I just understood it was necessary. And the child could tell, look, I don't enjoy this, but you know it's necessary. And, and it's just effective, once again, if you have that conversation. So anyhow, let them know you love them, but you have to hold them accountable. And then, you know, often kids will understand, Jeff, and they'll try to do better in the future, right? True. Yeah, the only thought or two I might add, and more of a, you know, wisdom to parents, you know, say what you mean and mean what you say. If you set a boundary... Well, don't set the boundary unless you intend on enforcing the boundary. Uh, I've seen far too many situations where, you know, parents will say something that the child needs to do or stop doing. And if the child pushes against the boundary, the parent crumbles and lets them do it anyway. Don't say something unless you intend to enforce it because that's consistency, which the child learns. Absolutely. The other thing you mentioned, you talked about, you know, growing up, respecting authority. In some ways, I think that's kind of key. Because parents sort of, you know, being the first authority figures in the child's life sort of set the stage of what authority means, how it's communicated, how it's enforced, etc. And so based on that initial experience, a child then learns how to deal with authority, hopefully in a good way, whether it's their parents, whether it's teachers in the classroom, whether it's their employer, whether it's the police, etc. So I like that phrase, you know, growing up, you know, respecting authority in general based on their experiences with their parents. Yeah, that's so important. So the next question comes to you from Jenny. She says, how do I honor my father who is absolutely dishonorable as a father? He killed one of his own children before she was born, throwing her mother on the floor and kicking her in the stomach. He told me when I was nine or 10, you're not mine. I don't want you. And I wish I could send you back to where you came from. How do I honor him as my father? Wow. Very dramatic, right? And certainly understandable why they would ask. Well, absolutely. And I think this is just one example. And, you know, listeners in our audience may have heard of similar examples. They may have experienced things in, in their own families, et cetera. You know, an absolutely horrible role, role model, absolutely bad example of what I would just bluntly call an evil parent. And because of that, let's keep in mind that unless they repent, they will be held eternally accountable for what they did, for what they said, for child abuse, you know, setting a bad example, etc. Okay, so first of all, ultimately justice will be served. Now, here's an interesting thought that, that came to me. As we look through the scriptures, certainly there are commands to honor our parents. You know, as we read earlier, Ephesians chapter 6. There's also indication of honoring other people. For example, uh, Leviticus 19 verse 32, honoring the elderly. 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 1, honoring our employer. Uh, in fact, in uh, 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 18, talking about the employee-employer, well, in their time, you know, servant-master relationship, 1 Peter 2.18, depending on your translation, this includes those masters, or in our modern culture, our employers, are froward, harsh, unjust, cruel, unreasonable, ill-tempered, or overbearing. Again, that kind of depends on your translation. Uh, we're also to honor those in civil authority, uh, those in you know governmental rules, you know, governors, king, presidents, whatever. Romans chapter 13, verse 7. 
and 1 Peter 2, verse 17. So I want to kind of generalize the question just a little bit and ask or ponder, how can we honor people in positions of authority, generally speaking, especially when they don't deserve it? And I know, at least with Brian, our, in our current you know, political environment, you know, there is a lot of hostility out there against you know, government officials, president, etc., with all kinds of even overt hatred, name-calling, slander, etc. Okay. So if I generalize the question a little bit, how do we honor the people God commands us to honor in positions of authority, especially when they don't deserve it? Well, here's a couple of different thoughts. First of all, Acts 4.19, Acts 5.29 would indicate that in general, we are to submit to authority unless it violates God's law. So a government or a teacher or whatever in a position of authority in general, we are to submit, of course, unless they're telling us to do something you know we shouldn't be doing. It doesn't give us an excuse to ignore them, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Second Corinthians chapter 12, verse 20, we're not to gossip, slander, speak evil of. Got to be careful there. Jude verse 9, we can confront in a respectful manner. And particularly in this question that Jenny asks, in the case of elderly parents, there may be a financial need if they're needy. First Timothy chapter 5, verses 4 through 8 would start to address that and the need to provide for our own household. Of course, I might quickly add that assumes we are not enabling them by giving them money to continue to support a sinful lifestyle because they're an alcoholic or drug abuse, etc. So there you go. You know, giving honor to perhaps the office or the position or the role, even though the person filling that role is not honorable. Ryan, any thoughts before we go to the next question? Yeah, I really appreciate those thoughts. And, you know, our heart goes out to Jenny and any others who, who are raised in difficult situations like that. And, you know, as you were going through these passages, Jeff, one other one that came to my mind is what Jesus said over in Matthew chapter 5 about loving your enemies. We would hope that an enemy wouldn't be those of our own household, but it could happen, right? So, Jesus said in verse 44, you know, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Well, that sounds like her father, doesn't it? And so anyhow, he goes on to say that you may be sons of your father in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and good and sends rain on the just and unjust. So we do our part regardless of how people treat us, and even if it's very difficult at times to, to show love towards somebody like that. Good point. Yeah, really good points. Okay, on to the next one. Edward writes in, does the Bible say that if a wife doesn't have sex with her husband, that the husband can divorce her? Yeah, so when you think about this idea of wifely duties, we might say, or, or spousely duties, because it's not just wives, right? Husbands and wives have responsibilities to each other. The answer is no. You cannot divorce them if they withhold sex from the other partner. You know, Jesus tells us in Matthew 19 and verse 9 that there's only one reason that any of us can get a divorce, and that's if their spouse commits adultery. And so in Matthew 19, 9, he said, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries who is divorced commits adultery. Now, the wife would be committing sin, though, to withhold affection from her husband, and we know that from passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 
beginning in verse 3, where it says, Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So wonderful passage here that the Holy Spirit gives us through Paul because it's just saying husbands and wives have a responsibility to each other. They need to be sensitive to the needs and desires of their spouse. And if there are times where you want to withhold for things like fasting and prayer, that's fine. But don't allow it to be for a long period of time because you can see how Satan, as is mentioned there in verse 5, could tempt one or both of the spouses that, hey, if I'm not getting it within the marriage, let me go outside the marriage. So, you know, I would say addressing the issue with your wife is really the best method as God always wants us to resolve differences in marriage. And, and you know, we see that in like Ephesians 4, 26 and 27 where it talks about, you know, not letting the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. So you always want to work out any issues that you have, and it may not be easy to talk about such a sensitive subject. However, if you're not able to resolve it in that way, then, you know, seeking marriage counseling from a Christian counselor would be effective also in resolving the issue. And I just emphasize Christian because, unfortunately, there are all too many worldly-minded counselors that would tell you, not just in the marriage, you know, if you don't like them as a partner, well, we need to do what the Bible says, right, Jeff? So anyhow. Yeah, definitely. Uh, all good points. In fact, at this point, I don't know if I can really add any more, Brian. Well, we will move on to the next question then. So Frankie asked, did Paul the Apostle have a family? Well, based on what he wrote, in the passage you mentioned a few moments ago, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 7, the answer is no, Paul was unmarried. Although, I might add as a side comment, he did have a sister, at the very least, per Acts 23, verse 16. Now, I might add, I'm assuming the person is asking from a physical perspective, I might add that spiritually speaking, sometimes Paul did refer to those he converted as his children. We see some references to Timothy as Paul's son in the faith, 1 Corinthians 4, verse 17, and 1 Timothy 1, verse 2, as well as Onesimus, Philemon 1, verse 10. So did Paul the Apostle have a family? Not in a physical sense. There's the quick answer. Yeah, and that one is pretty straightforward, isn't it? So appreciate those passages. Well, and that's a good point because, you know, sometimes we get some really tough questions they're complex, lots of uh, different aspects to them. And once in a while, we get an easy one, <laughs> like this one. Yes. So that takes us to Jeannie, who writes in, and it's a little bit of a lengthy reading, but let me go ahead and do it. My 45-year-old daughter is angry at me because she thinks I have undermined her as a parent. She was yelling at her 10-year-old, and the child was so upset and crying and as I tried to comfort the child, my daughter got angry at me. I am a grandmother and the first to discipline a child that needs it, but I try not to do it in a way that makes the situation worse. I might not have been the best mother in the world, but I loved my children. And sometimes I wonder, where did I go wrong? I am hurt and don't want to have any hard feelings, but my daughter thinks I'm interfering with her way to raise her child. I want to do the Christian thing, but I don't know where to start. 
good situation to talk about, Brian. Yeah, it sure is. And it may be a little more common than we think. And no doubt as parents and grandparents, or sometimes you might just be good friends with somebody, you see something happen with a child and it's hard not to want to step in. So I guess there's always this balancing act of, well, should I? Is it appropriate? If so, how? Sometimes we just react. So yeah, anyhow, real good situation to work through. Now, based on what she described, to me, it sounds like her timing may have been really what the issue was here. So because she immediately addressed the 10-year-old, it almost kind of sounds like while she was still being yelled at, if you will, it certainly, we can understand how her daughter may have had the impression that she was undermining her. So first and foremost, I commend this grandmother for her love for her grandchild and her inclination to comfort them, especially if she felt it was, you know, too harsh. But in this case, it appears, you know, that the comforting in her daughter's mind negated the discipline that she had administered. And so even though maybe her daughter was too harsh, and as a result of that, it caused her child to cry, it may have been better to have waited for a little while before offering comfort. So, you know, it didn't come across as interfering. And so certainly as her mother, the mother of the the woman who was yelling at her child, you know, she has a right to speak to her daughter. And certainly, you know, when things calm down, if, you know, she felt her tone was yelling or too harsh or whatever. But, you know, a discussion with the child could also be done separately after she calmed down. You know, just to encourage them to be obedient, minimize the chance that they'll be yelled at if they were doing something that was wrong and justified the yelling, if you will. And so, you know, once again, you kind of have to weigh, all right, what happened? What should I do? Often, you know, just give it some time and then you could talk to both of them and it'll probably been just fine. So anyhow, you know, it's just good to reflect after you go through something like this and say, okay, what could I have done differently? Like, I guess, with any situation in life. And certainly for her, it sounds like she had the right goals in mind. It's just that Jeannie's approach may just have needed a little tweaking or refining, if you will. Well, and in my own mind, you know, since I have three children at this point and nine grandchildren, you know, it certainly could be a challenge for us grandparents, and I'm including, you know, grandparents in our listeners, to have a proper role, if you will, when it comes to our children and their children. And of course, again, this is yet another situation where balance is needed. You know, certainly if the parent is, as in the example we saw here, you know, if the parent is getting onto the child, you don't want to undercut the authority of the parent, you know, giving comfort to the child. Oh, you poor baby. Oh, yes, mommy was just upset or angry or whatever. Undercut, undermine the parent. Nor do you necessarily want to, from a balance perspective, get in the middle between the parent and child and start disciplining the child, calling them out, etc. Again, because that's more the parent's responsibility. Now, certainly we can prudently reinforce parental authority. And I've done this sometimes where the parent says, do something. The child's not listening. And I can chime in and say, now, what did your mom just say? And it's odd because in some cases they'll look at me and they'll go ahead and do what they're supposed to do. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know if it's, you know, again, I don't know if it's tone of voice or because they're not always dealing with me or because I just reinforced what the mom or the dad said. But, you know, that can be a way of constructively, you know, encouraging the child to, you know, obey the parent, for instance. And as you indicated, sometimes it might be after the event, going off to the side and saying, you know, I I wish you're tempted to do this, say this, whatever. Let's chat. Let's talk about it. 
But bottom line is, you know, grandparents do have kind of a role there. But the primary role, as we've mentioned, is with the uh, with the parents. Yeah, you're so right. All right. So the next question for you, Jeff, comes from Dwayne. And Dwayne says, when to quit trying to get along with the sibling when you keep getting hurt? So I guess he's asking, when is it appropriate to quit trying to get along with your sibling if all they do is keep hurting you? That's what I kind of gather. Yeah, I, I kind of read that into it as well. And you know, Brian, I was kind of thinking through the scriptures, and I think for starters, I cannot think of a scripture that would address this kind of situation specifically. You know, certainly we have interesting examples of like Joseph and his brothers in in, in Genesis, but, you know, in terms of trying to have a harmonious relationship with your brother or sister, and they keep abusing that or abusing you or whatever the case may be. So I can't think of a specific scripture, but there's certainly some general principles. For instance, uh, I would start off with Romans chapter 12, beginning with verse 17, repay no one evil for evil. So we have to be careful there not to seek, you know, vengeance or revenge, etc., have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. So there's a good principle. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So there, there's a good principle. Matthew chapter 7, verse 12 we sometimes call the golden rule, is another good principle. Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. This is the law and the prophets. And I guess I also have to throw in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33, where it says, do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Sometimes that can be with friends. Sometimes, honestly, that can be with family. And the need to distance oneself from perhaps a brother or sister that is trying to drag you down, so to speak. Now, Brian, I must confess, you know, I grew up as an only child. You know, you grew up with multiple siblings. You know, maybe you can comment from a uh, pr- perspective of personal experience better than I can. Sure, happy to. So, yeah, I had a brother and two sisters. And, you know, we certainly had our moments when we were growing up where, you know, they hurt my feelings, I hurt theirs. Or maybe, you know, my older brother physically hurt me by being too rough when I was a kid, whatever. But, you know, we always tried to be candid with each other. So we knew how each other felt. And there are times where we had to go to mom and dad. Maybe they weren't listening or they didn't care or whatever. And so, you know, our parents would step in. But, you know, I found with them that regardless of those rough patches that we had from time to time, that we were always going to be there to support and encourage one another. And so, you know, I feel like ultimately when they see that you're kind, it's kind of like the proverb that says a soft answer turns away wrath. You know, it's hard for people, if you're kind and loving, not to return that unless they just are warped or whatever, they don't care. But certainly when it comes to brothers and sisters, what do we say? Take the high road, right? Always show them love. And they certainly had to do that with me as well. That that wasn't me just doing that to them, but they'd probably tell you there were plenty of times where they got tired of me, you know, and they had to be kind back and then and, and I came around. So anyhow, hopefully that helps. Well, and I appreciate that personal insight and sharing. Okay, looks like you get the next question from Rose. When the health of a woman is in question when she is pregnant, where in the Bible does it say to save the mother and not the child? Yeah, so kind of like you mentioned in the last question, this is another example of don't know really any passages that talk about this where, you know, this kind of a statement is made or where it's even inferred. Now, 
we do read about women in the Bible, like Phineas's wife in 1 Samuel 4, 19 through 20, and Rachel in Genesis 35, 16 through 19, who died during childbirth. What it doesn't tell us is, was there a choice between them living or their child living? Now, in Rachel's case, we are told that she had hard labor and that the child was eventually born, but unfortunately she died. So, you know, I think my own opinion is that I think most mothers would probably give their life if it meant the successful birth of their child instead of the other way around, but, but maybe not. You know, I'm not a woman and I can certainly see how it would be a difficult choice and, you know, likely they would need to discuss it with doctors. And I guess, too, Jeff, you know, maybe there's not always time to make that decision, especially if the child is coming, so to speak. But once again, if they know in advance and it just becomes a discussion with medical professionals and then having to make a decision, like if this occurs, the mother makes it clear, save the child, not me, something like that. So kind of a tricky one. I don't know if you have any other passages or thoughts about that. No, I, I don't have any other passages. I, I do have one small thought that, you know, I've heard of some situations where, for instance, the woman is pregnant and is diagnosed with uh, cancer, for instance. And of course, you know, radiation, chemotherapy, et cetera, would harm or kill the child. And, you know, these are very hard situations to work our way through. And it's probably more, as you said, a, a personal discussion husband and wife, doctor, medical professionals. And I've heard of some situations where pregnant mothers will hold off on medical treatment, for instance, for cancer, to give the child enough time to be born and then undergo the treatment, which may work out fine or because of the delay may work out negatively. So again, a very, a very hard situations to deal with. But from, you know, from a scriptural perspective, not certain we can give any, you know, sound advice when the life of two people is being threatened, so to speak. Yeah, and it's kind of interesting how, how many questions we've talked about today where we're saying, look, it's a matter of judgment. Look at those Bible principles and then just do your best to make the, the right decision or decision that you feel aligns with the Bible the most, right? Right. Well, and in this case, you know, we're, we're looking at a situation of, you know, extreme medical emergency kind of thing. We're certainly not talking about uh, getting an abortion for convenience, as an example. Yep. All right. So next question for you, Jeff, uh, was submitted anonymously, and this person said... Since some people say that missing church because of family isn't a valid reason to miss it, does this mean that attending church should be more important to us than our family? Should attending church be more important to us than our family itself? So what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, and it's a good question because there's a couple different aspects that I would like to highlight. You know, first of all, let's commend the person for realizing that gathering with fellow faithful Christians to worship the Lord and to encourage one another is important. In fact, it's a command from God. And if those in our audience would like more on this particular topic, you know, they can turn to, you know, our website, look under the topics menu item, look under A for attendance. Yeah, this, you know, attending church, worshiping God, you know, Sunday worship, however you want to phrase that, certainly is not only important, but as I mentioned, you know, it is a command. So it's not something to be ignored or taken lightly, or yeah, I'll go to services once in a while, oh, I'll go to services when it's convenient, or I'll go to services on Christmas and Easter, as an example. So let's you know, recognize and acknowledge the, uh, and commend the person 
realizing that it is indeed important. Now, as we dig a little bit deeper, missing church because of family. I don't know what they mean when they say because of family. There's a couple different scenarios that came to my mind, uh, at least three. For instance, scenario number one, we have a young child in the family who is sick at home on Sunday. The parents stay with the child that needs to be cared for. That's one scenario. Scenario number two, let's just say family members come to town to visit and the member chooses to spend all Sunday with them instead of going to worship services. Scenario number three, the family is antagonistic to Christianity, is trying to interfere with a faithful Christian trying to be faithful and forbids, you know, going to worship. So I got three different scenarios. And as you can tell, probably three different answers, Brian. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So scenario one, I mean, this with a you know sick child, you know, similar to a person being sick, Missing services, something unavoidable, not used an excuse, etc. So in that kind of scenario, that would be okay. Now, notice scenario number two, family comes to town to visit. Now we're talking about a matter of choice. You're also, Brian, we're kind of talking about a matter of setting a bad example and indicating to the rest of the family what's more important. Visiting, having fun, playing games, you know, going out to eat, spending the day with them. And they've kind of made a choice now between their physical family and their spiritual family. And, you know, let's just bluntly say that's not good because, again, you're forsaking you know, coming together just to have, you know, family fun time with your physical family. Obviously, scenario three, where the family's forbidding or interfering with going to worship, clearly condemned. As we mentioned earlier today, Acts 4.19 and 5.29, the need for Christians to obey God rather than men. In fact, Jesus himself uh, got a couple of passages here. Let's start off with Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through 37. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Which I know some people may read that passage and go, what? What is this about Jesus? I thought Jesus was, you know, bring peace, you know, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Well, yes, in terms of relationship with God. And ideally, relationship with one another within the family. But what if, you know, what if some members of the family choose to become faithful Christians and others do not? Well, now the stage is set for conflict. And Jesus very clearly says, in such conflict, you better love Jesus, you better love God, you better love the Bible, you better love obeying God, you better love worship services, by extension, more than even your family. In fact, Luke chapter 14, verse 26, says it a little bit more poignantly. If anyone comes to be and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Of course, we understand in the context of like Matthew 10 and other passages that talk about needing to honor our parents and you know love our children, that this hate is not what we would normally associate with hatred, but more a relative sense of loving less. 
you know, we need to love our family, but less than we love God. And if it comes to a choice between the two, we need to pick loving God. Brian, any thoughts? Yeah, it does often come down to priorities, right? And then just letting all those around you know, look, serving the Lord is very important to me. And so I will put aside all other things to do that. So yeah, appreciate those thoughts. Good point. All right. So Diane submits the next question for you. Where does it talk about taking care of your parents without receiving back? Yeah. So here, if we look in the scriptures, the Lord expects us to honor our father and mother. And you know, we see how important that was because the Lord, under the old law, was one of the Ten Commandments. It was the fifth of the Ten Commandments. So we see that God said that we should honor our father and mother in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 12. And then we see it reiterated under the law of Christ in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 2 and 3. Here, honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you and you may live long in the earth. Now, I would guess most who, unless they have parents that are terrible, as we were talking about earlier, they would want to honor their father and mother. They love their father and mother. And in many respects, they don't have to be told this, but the Lord makes it clear. It's not just about loving them. When it comes to honoring, it could and often does include doing things like taking care of them when there's a need or as they get older. And so, you know, we're taught this principle of taking care of them over in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 4. Where we're told, but if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety at home and repay their parents, for this is good and acceptable before God. And then Paul also says a few verses later in the same context, but if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So we, you know, Holy Spirit makes it very clear what God expects in this area. Now, as far as expecting to receive something back, I think it stands to reason that we should never expect to be repaid because by helping our parents, we're simply doing what we're supposed to do when we take care of them. I mean, they've raised us for years, and frankly, it's an honor to help them wherever there's a need. In fact, Paul references the words of Jesus in Acts chapter 20 and verse 35 when Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So if we have that attitude and that mentality, then absolutely, we want to take care of our parents and we never expect anything in return. Good thoughts. One final question for you from Dennis. Is it predetermined who we will be or is our birth and family random or by chance? Interesting. It is. And yet again, here's another question that I think we basically have to defer to the silence of the scriptures (laughs) in the sense of I'm not aware of a scripture that indicates that our birth or our birth family, you know, or even who we will be is something that is predetermined, preset, unchangeable, basically miraculously by God. And hence, because of that lack of scripture that says this is what God does, Therefore, I believe it's more a matter of time and chance. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 13. Now, Brian, I might quickly add, the Bible does talk about predetermination or predestination in the context of salvation. But, you know, again, as a side comment, that's more related to God predetermining the kind of people that he will find acceptable and save, and not his arbitrarily picking individuals, regardless of their obedience. In that particular case, again, you know, under the topics menu item, P for predestination. But in terms of God 
predetermining, you know, I'm going to be born into a certain family of, you know, characteristics, you know, racial characteristics or economic characteristics or national characteristics, you know, whatever the case may be. I think that's more the, the luck of the draw. And really more, I might add as a side comment, you know, more up to us to make the best of the circumstances that we find ourselves in. Yeah, and you know, it's interesting. There are examples of prophets. I was thinking of like Jeremiah and Isaiah, the Apostle Paul, where there's statements by them, of course, the Holy Spirit to them, that the Lord knew them, that the Lord was going to call them for a specific purpose. But to your point, that's different than like Calvinists teach where God's predetermining whether or not you'll be faithful or whether or not you'll be saved, because there are many, many passages that make it crystal clear that it's each person's choice they have free will so yeah indeed and i do appreciate you know there there do seem to be some exceptions within the scriptures or as part of god's overall plan of salvation and through his infinite foreknowledge <laughs> that he could you know pick certain people even before they're born even before they're conceived <laughs> to uh, you know perform certain special roles uh brian anything else you want to add overall uh, from the podcast perspective before i point folks back to the website Yeah, I would just say that hopefully our listeners have found this discussion of family to be beneficial. You know, some of the questions that we went through today, in fact, all of them, really kind of reflect the variety of thoughts and challenges that people have as they live their lives and they have their own immediate families. And in some cases, when those families are ungodly, you know, how best to deal with those. And certainly going back to the intro, Jeff, that you did, we see that God's plan is to have a husband and a wife that are God-fearing people, that have offspring that they raise to do good works that God prepared beforehand as we read Ephesians chapter 2.10. And if we have that kind of a family, that's what really God wants. Definitely agree with that. So for our listeners, if you would like additional information on this general topic, I would strongly suggest you go to our website at biblequestions.org. You'll find a topics menu item, or you'll find a list of letters, depending on your browser or your device, that will help guide you to articles and previous questions we've answered. For example, we mentioned A for abortion, D for divorce, F for family, and M for marriage. And as we always like to say, I certainly would encourage you to investigate the material, especially the scriptural references, you know, study the scriptures, don't just take our word for it, uh, and be willing to try to uh, conform your lives to God's word and be faithful. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Bible Questions podcast. We invite you to visit our website, biblequestions.org, where you can submit a Bible question to be answered, and you can also search archives where we have answered several hundred Bible questions over the years. Our website also has a host of free Bible study material, free correspondence courses, as well as sermons and a host of other material. Please stop by and check it out.